Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy. The book was published by Oxford University Press this year. The author is Seth Maskett. I have such a pleasure to have Seth on the podcast today. Seth, how are you doing? Good. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to have you on and, and to have read the book. I know some things about you, but maybe everyone doesn't. Before we get to talking about your work, maybe you could just give a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Um, I am a professor of political science and chair of the policy department at the University of Denver. Been here about a dozen years. Prior to that, I got my uh, doctorate at UCLA. Before that, I had spent uh, some time in D after college. I uh, worked for the Clinton uh, White House Office of Correspondence in the early 90s and uh, worked uh, just prior to that in a uh, a Ralph Nader organization called Public Citizen. So I spent a little bit of time working both uh, in government and in politics before going on to grad school. Yeah, the the, the book, I imagine, is a result of all of these different experiences. Your book is primarily about parties and also party reform. I wonder if you could briefly start us off by giving your working definition of what a political party is, and then talk a little bit about some of the types of party reforms that you studied. Certainly. So um, I tend to view parties as as something more than uh, simply an organization that has Democratic or Republican written on the door. Uh, That is, the the formal organization like the uh, the Democratic National Committee or something like that is certainly an important part of the party, but it is not the only part. I tend to view parties as these loose networks of what have been called uh, intense policy demanders, that is, political actors who are seeking something out of government. They want to move government in one direction or another to make taxes lower or higher, to make abortions easier or harder to obtain. They want something in government, and they tend to work and coordinate with other people to control party nomination in order to achieve that. That is, they get the type of people they want nominated to office and then help those people try and win in the general election and essentially seek control of the government at multiple levels that way. So this was a, you know, the, essentially the active definition I was using uh, when I worked on my first book, No Middle Ground, which was a look at party polarization in the state of California. And when I was studying that, I was particularly fascinated by this one style of reform that uh, California was dealing with in the first half of the 20th century. They had this process known as crossfire, wherein uh, candidates for any partisan office could run uh, for as many party nominations as they wanted. They could run as many primaries as they wanted, and their party label never appeared next to their name on the ballot. And so what happened as a result of that is that, you know, incumbents tended to win overwhelmingly at the primary stage. You have typically a, you know, maybe a Republican would win and would have the Republican and Democratic and progressive and prohibition party nominee uh, for that office and would face no one in the November general election. And predictably, uh, partisanship just kind of bottomed out 
uh, for about four years uh, during that process. It was um, only through, through a lot of labor union activism in the 1950s uh, that they managed to achieve some quite institutional reforms that, that brought parties back. I was fascinated by that experience and wanted to see if there were similar sorts of party organizations, these kind of informal parties operating uh, in other states and also states that have similar experiences with reforms. So I, I look at a state I'm looking at here are all in some ways vaguely similar to California in that they have, there were states in which the progressive movements of the early 1900s was very strong. But I look at very specific types of reforms that they, that they had been dealing with. Uh, I look at both Minnesota and Nebraska's experience with uh, nonpartisan legislatures. Uh, I look at the, the style of, you know, sort of nonpartisan recall election that California has. Um, I look at Wisconsin, which was the first state to adopt the uh, direct primary uh, at a statewide level in the early 1900s, and that was seen as a way to kind of uh, undermine or, or destroy the formal party. And I look at Colorado's experience with uh, campaign finance reform uh, uh, early in the last decade, which was seen as an effort part to undermine the formal parties, to cut off funding to them, and thus you know, uh, make the legislature less partisan place. And so this is a, a certainly, you know, very different state, very different types of uh, reforms, but these reforms were all in one way or another directed against the party system, against partisanship, and they all, to some extent, fail. That is, you see parties, these kind of, this sort of network version of parties responding to these reforms and eventually adapting to it, and, and many times uh, surpassing it. So uh, you see in, in Minnesota, for example, example, the the formation of these uh, liberal and conservative caucuses within the state legislature during the nonpartisan era to the point where they were actually a fully functioning party system. They they did everything that a party does. It just never appeared on the ballot. And partisanship reasserting itself in all these different states. So... You, in, in, let's get to some of those, uh, the, the chapters, sort of case studies of these, these different states, but also these different types of uh, reforms. You highlight four uh, individuals from Colorado in Chapter 3. Uh, I wonder if you could briefly introduce them and then describe what they did that was so innovative in 2004. Okay. So what you have going on in Colorado in 2002, you have essentially two simultaneous reforms. Uh, you have the, the passage of the McCain-Feingold, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act at the federal level. And then almost simultaneously, you have the passage of a state initiative, Amendment 27 in Colorado, which did a similar thing. That is, it, it, it sharply limited uh, how much candidates could spend, how much candidates could raise. And in particular, it sharply lowered the limits on how much people could donate to a state political party and how much those parties could spend on candidates. So uh, it was sort of widely predicted that once this was going to annihilate the parties and uh, the parties themselves were panicking, didn't quite know what to do about it. At roughly this time, you have the emergence of essentially some people who have given them a number of different names, essentially these, these liberal activists who have a lot of money. Some people call them four millionaires, some people call them the gang of four. One of them is Tim Gill, who made a lot of money with uh, Fork software years ago, and even today is still very active uh, in political circles. Jared Polis, who's a business entrepreneur from Boulder. Today, he's a member of Congress. Pat Stryker, who was uh, heiress to a family medical corporation in Fort Collins, Colorado. 
She was uh, roughly a billionaire at the time. And then uh, Rep Bridges, who uh, worked in petroleum companies and has been involved in politics to one extent or another. What these uh, folks did is that they started coordinating both together and with the formal Democratic Party in 2003 and 2004, and with a number of other kind of liberal interest groups and fundraising organizations to essentially they adopted the goal of trying to flip the state legislature from Republican to Democratic. Part of this was a specific reaction to a number of anti-gay bills that had passed in the state legislature. And so they were they were responding to that and just sort of figured we could get much more of the legislation we wanted if we simply flipped this from red to blue. And so they focused on working with the formal Democrats in the state to identify which districts could potentially flip and work on what sort of messages might work, what they would have to do to affect voter turnout. And then through this kind of bizarre network of 527 independent expenditure groups and, and some direct donations, get the money to the candidates who needed it and try and make a difference in the races. And, you know, this was in many ways a response to these very direct hard limits that Amendment 27 had put in place. You know, the money couldn't go directly from A to B anymore. It would have to follow a much more demanding uh, route to get there. But there were still ways to do it, and they were, they had both the, the resources and the inclination to make that happen. So, you know, they, they worked with state party leaders. They identified uh, the, the key races that might flip, and they managed to pull it off. And uh, the analysis I do, I find that the activity of this group, this organization, uh, on the races that they targeted actually produced a several point boost for the Democratic candidates in those districts. And this turned out to be an election in which uh, President Bush won re-election in the state of Colorado. He won statewide by about five points. But Democrats managed to flip the House and the Senate in the state from uh, Republican to Democratic control in that same year. So there were, you know, most voters don't really necessarily distinguish. They'll, you know, between one level or another, they'll simply vote party line. There were quite a few voters who voted for President Bush, but nonetheless uh, voted Democratic on these key races. And so just enough of them to uh, split control of the state house. Yeah, and so this is an example uh, of a a political reform that is a new campaign finance limit really being war- the, the sort of a, a, a group of individuals that were in the party, but not the formal party figuring out how to work around around the rules. And that's, you know, one of the sort of the themes of the book. Another one of the chapters is, is focused on polarization and perhaps no other issues is of the moment as political polarization and an issue that party reform sometimes are targeted at, that targeted at reducing polarization. Nonpartisan legislatures is, is one of the ways that that might be accomplished. And you look at Nebraska's experiment with nonpartisanship. What has this told us about whether nonpartisan legislatures can, in fact, reduce and, and maintain uh, low levels of polarization over time. Tell us about Nebraska. So Nebraska, I find, I'm having a hard time selling people on this, but I find it one of the most fascinating states in the country right now in the sense that it is a, it is an officially nonpartisan chamber. It is run in a nonpartisan way. Party labels do not appear on the ballot when members uh, run for office. Uh, there's no official party organization within the chamber. There's no official majority and minority speakers elected through secret ballot. So, and they've had the system since the 1930s. And if you speak with legislators, they tend to be very proud of the system that they, that they assembled there. That people, you know, it's a small chamber. 
There's 49 members total. It's the only, uh, you know, it's the only unicameral chamber in the country. And it is collegiate. Uh, people do know each other. People get along. Nonetheless, uh, over the last decade, it is the most rapidly polarizing state legislature in the country. And this is evidence that uh, uh, Forrest Shore and Nolan McCarty have been picking up in their um, quantitative study of roll call voting patterns in all the state legislatures. And that in itself is pretty interesting. So, you know, I, I was jumping into this and trying to figure out, well, what, you know, what exactly explains that? How can you have this nonpartisan chamber that is nonetheless polarizing so rapid? And the story there seems to be that it was roughly a decade ago, 2006, that term limits uh, kicked in. And so they, they adopted term limits in Nebraska later than many other states did. But what that meant is that you have many long-term incumbents suddenly being kicked out of office. And it's actually hard to find people sometimes to run for state legislature. It's not very well compensated. They're only in session part of the year. And a lot of this recruitment for candidates has come down to formal party leaders, uh, people running state Democratic or state Republican Party. And they have become very active in looking, just going through roles of active voters and, and you know, looking through some of their own employees and some of the people they know to find Democrats have been looking for increasingly liberal uh, candidates to run for office. Republicans have been looking for increasingly conservative candidates to run for office. And it's very much their own activism and their recruitment efforts that have helped to polarize this chamber pretty substantially. And it's been, uh, it's actually been pretty fascinating to watch. So that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the nonpartisan legislature there has been an out and out failure. It still lacks that partisan identity. And my impression is that polarization in Nebraska is substantially lower than what it would be if you were to somehow put party labels back on the ballot. But nonetheless, just the lack of party labels doesn't mean that it will be a completely nonpartisan chamber. In fact, it's more polarized than 20 or so other Throughout the US. Yeah, and so this actually kind of gets to the question. You, you tell similar stories in other state contexts, and sort of the lessons are, are similar across them. But but what should we make of this? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, what is your is your argument that these kinds of reforms are sort of destined not just to fail in their immediate purpose, but also have some other unintended negative consequences? Or is it that there are ways that working within the parties or strengthening the parties could have some positive impacts for for reformers, that, that the very uh, goals that they have related to democracy could be met much to a greater extent within the parties. What's the What, what should we make of the book? Well, there's a, there's a couple of takeaways here. I think one of the big ones is that a lot of these reform movements, these reform efforts, uh, proceed with what I see as a mistaken idea of what political parties are and the role that they serve. Parties are not very popular, and the United States is hardly unique in that regard. Um, in, in many countries, uh, political parties are, are generally pretty well despised. People have come to see them as essentially interfering in normal democratic processes. They stand between voters and their elected officials. They, they cause unnecessary strife and division. Uh, they, they distort what we're trying to do in a, in a democratic system. And so, the, you know, just following from that, the idea would be, well, if we can just somehow get rid of these parties and defang them, we could have a much better public policy. And in fact, you know, not only does that not seem to work, but I, I think that's very much a, a mistaken idea of what political parties are and what they do. I, I spend some time in the book uh, trying to argue for the positive aspect of political parties. You know, well, conceding is that they can be incredibly frustrating and, and you know, sometimes can really slow down what uh, democracy is trying to achieve. They nonetheless are, you know, these fantastic tools for representing 
voter concerns, for involving voters in elections, promoting voter turnout, for translating people's desires into actual public policy ideas. And uh, so I think there's, you know, there's a mistake in, in just trying to get rid of them. But also just the act of trying to get rid of them tends to make situations worse. Okay. So this campaign finance reform in Colorado and nationally that was designed to uh, undermine political parties, well, the end result of that uh, was not to drive money out of politics, but simply to drive the money underground. It's a lot harder to trace that money. So one of the key things that we want in a campaign finance is some sort of accountability. If someone's getting funded from the gas and oil industry or from labor unions or from whatever, generally we think it's good that people can know that, that reporters can track that information down and find it. It's gotten a lot harder to do that as a result. These probably very well-intentioned reforms if you want to take uh, parties out of elections, take them out of the legislature. That may be, again, very well intentioned, but what it does is it increases voter confusion. Voters have less of an idea who they're voting for in a ballot. A lot of people tend simply to pass on those contests. The voter turnout is lower when the elections are, are without parties. They simply they don't know what they feel they need to know to make an informed decision between two candidates. So my impression is that the attempt to, uh, to drive parties out of the system tends to make the political system more opaque, less representative in the long run. Now, your book is out, and given that we are reaching uh, the summer reading and beach reading uh, season, I'm sure that people have picked up your book and are reading it by pools and lakes and what have you, I'd be very interested to know what is on your summer reading list. Is there something that you are uh, looking forward to reading or in the midst of that you could recommend, either of the digital or non-digital variety? Certainly. I've actually I've got Two books on my plate for this summer. One is uh, Catherine Kramer's The Politics of Resentment, which I, I haven't started yet, although I've heard only wonderful things about it. It's, a, it's essentially a, a very detailed look at rural voting and rural voters in Wisconsin uh, helping to explain the rise of Scott Walker. But I think there's probably just much larger national implications uh, for American politics, uh, for understanding where the politics of resentment is coming from, how this kind of interacts with, with race, with economic insecurity, and I think helps to probably explain it a good deal of what's happened at the presidential level this year. Yeah, and, C- and Kathy was on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, perfect. Okay. I'm also reading a little bit outside my wheelhouse, Milan Lupu's book, uh, Party Brands in Crisis, which is in, in some ways looking at the actual opposite thing that my book looks at. It's looking at partisanship and party breakdown in Latin American democracies. That is, you have a, a number of uh, major political parties that within the space of one election cycle have essentially collapsed and gone out of business there. And, you know, the main argument being that when you have parties that do things that are essentially totally against their belief system, their nature, often in response to uh, pressure for economic reforms in Latin American democracies. You essentially have all these unmoored voters who don't know what their party stands for anymore. And if you combine that with massive economic downturn while this party is in power, you can actually see a party essentially just close shop and go out of business and go from like 40 or 50 percent support to under 10 percent support within one cycle. That's certainly not the kind of thing we have experience with in the United States. It's not uh, in the last 150 or so years, but it's, I think, very informative about, you know, just what political parties are and how, you know, the U.S. experience is not necessarily the experience of everyone around the 
world. Yeah, two, two really interesting uh, additions, maybe to everybody's summer reading list, uh, as well as The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy. Seth's book is published by Oxford University Press this year and available, I'm sure, at their website. Seth, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure talking.